We call this the conscious mind. You know everything that takes place up here. But you don't know a thing of what takes place down here in the unconscious. Welcome to AmateurLogic.tv, episode 9. I'm George. And I'm Jim. And I'm Tommy. Boy, it's been a hot August in Mississippi this year. What about in Missouri, Tommy? Oh, man, it's been terribly hot. Well, Tommy, it's been so hot down here that George decided to cut off all his hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I see that. I almost didn't recognize him at first. Yeah. So how long was it, George? Uh, It was just... Just over a foot long. I donated it to Locks Love. <laughs> well, and then good. I still had plenty to cut off after that. So. <laughs> well, it looks good. Well, Don't you. you think, Tommy? Yeah, it does look good. I bet it's a lot cooler, too. It is. You could be a television personality now. No, nah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you, you look almost respectable. No, almost. we can't have that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to be back for episode nine. It is. It is. We've got uh, the same crew here. Jim and I are in Mississippi and Tommy's in Missouri. And through the magic of Skype yep. video. There you go. We're going to try it again. Tommy's looking good, isn't he? Yeah. Looking good. He had a little right. blockhead a while ago, but that <laughs> seems to the, have disappeared. man in the box here. Yeah. <laughs> Can't get out. I cleaned the outside of it, but you're going to have to clean the inside yourself. Yeah, I see a couple of spots, but I forgot to get the Windex part climbed in. <laughs> well, Jim, we had, a little, next time. we had a little email uh, regarding your capacitor segment. That's right, we did, George, and it was blatantly missing from last episode. Uh, as you know, part two was supposed to come up, and I just wanted to drop a little note in here to tell viewers it's not in this episode either. <laughs> <laughs> He's holding you in suspense. Uh, however, it, it will be in a soon-to-come future episode. Did do uh, some finish-up work on that last night, so should be showing up it's soon. It's going to be in number 10. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we do have, I do have a nice network tool segment for you this time. Yeah, tell us a little more about it. What what are you right. going to be talking about this time? Well, we're going to be talking about a uh, network tool called a packet sniffer. Ah, packet sniffer. Yeah. What does a packet smell like? <laughs> well, <laughs> it uh, smells different to different people, I guess <laughs> you'd say. Uh, it smells one way to network administrators who are kind of using that tool as a troubleshooting diagnostic tool and it smells an entirely different way to a bad guy hacker type. Wow, let's have a look. Okay. Oh, hello there. Glad you could join us. I'll just put this away. It's a little something that may show up in a future ALTV episode. We'll see. 
Uh, today we're going to delve back into networking tools. And the particular type of networking tool that we're going to take a look at today is something called a packet sniffer. And the particular packet sniffer, well, let's just take a look at it. It's ethereal, and it's the world's most popular network protocol analyzer, or packet sniffer. Well, what's a packet sniffer? Well, first let's talk about what's a packet. A packet is a short burst of information, such as requests from your computer to another computer. So what's a packet sniffer? Well, remember the old telephone wiretaps where you listened in on the wire? Well, packet sniffing is reading the wire. Same concept. Ready to try one? Okay, let's do our own packet sniff. We go up here to capture. That's how we tell Ethereal to start capturing packets or reading them or copying them off the wire. And as you can see, there's a lot of traffic that he's capturing, but we're going to generate some traffic of our own anyway, and then we're going to go back and find it and analyze it. And uh, whoops. So we're going to ping www.yahoo.com, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. Also, we're going to generate some web or HTTP traffic. Going to go to Google, and we're going to do a search on uh, for uh, something like battery. And there we go. Now, we've got all the data generated that we care about, so we're going to stop our capture, and we're going to analyze and find that very data. So we come up here to analyze and click on display filters, and we're going to filter our data. And uh, one of the filters I see here is HTTP. So if we click OK right here, he's going to get rid of all traffic that we captured except for HTTP. Look at here. It's a Google search. This first gray line is what we sent or what our computer sent to Google. And the green one is what Google sent back. Let's look at this. Uh, we can get a detailed analysis of this information by looking at these bottom two panes. What you're seeing here in this middle pane is the layers of information uh, that's contained. They're like categories of information. And when I click on one in the middle pane, the bottom pane shows what's contained just in that layer. Well, what are these layers? Glad you asked that question. Some friends of mine were asking me the same thing just the other day. <laughs> the layers are called the OSI model, and they start at the top with application layer, layer 7. And right at this layer, that's something you or I would understand like the word battery. In our request to Google, the data is then wrapped in information that explains something about it. It might be how to decode it or how to unencrypt it. And then... Our packet is handed downward through level one and put out onto the network. And when the receiving computer receives it, it does the same thing, only in reverse. And then it sends it back to us, of course, through all of those layers again. Now, let's look at an actual example. Here's our sniff. And we're looking back at some real live layers here. And... Um, you can see the bottom pane is showing us what's contained in that layer. Here's layer three, Internet Protocol, also commonly called IP. You see here the header length is 20 bytes. Scrolling down a little bit, 
uh, time to live is 54 and if we click here you'll see the hexadecimal equivalent of 54 or the ASCII equivalent over on the right. It knows that the next layer up, the protocol is TCP. Here's the source IP address that the packet came from, which is Google, and down here's the hex representation of that IP address. And you see the destination address, my, my computer, and here's the next layer up, TCP, Transmission Control Protocol. So, there you go, a little HTTP traffic analysis for you. We can do other type analysis, or I say we can, Ethereal can. Come up here to Analyze, and this time we're going to go down to Follow TCP Stream. And this is the whole entire conversation, whether it was HTTP or not, between our computer and Google, and we see here color-coded in red what we sent, in blue what Google sent back in response. So some some of the conversation, even though uh, all we clicked on in our browser uh, was sending was HTTP, but there's some setup and teardown of the conversation between the two computers, and that's TCP. So we're following the whole TCP and HTTP stream. See, HTTP is a higher layer, and it's encapsulated inside TCP. We can change to a hex dump here if you don't like the ASCII decoding, and you still see the ASCII decoding on the right, but uh, if you were on an IBM or some other uh, platform, you might want EPSIDIC or C-Rays or RAW. And... Uh, ASCII's pretty readable to me, though, or the most readable. So, enough of that. Uh, remember our other data? ICMP. Anybody know what that stands for? Internet Control Messaging Protocol. ICMP, which is not IP, and it's not TCP, uh, is uh, something that is used strictly for diagnostic type work. I say it's not IP. It Here's IP, which is layer 3. It rides on top of IP. It's not TCP. It's ICMP. Let's take a look at it. This packet is a type 8 or ping request. It's a type 8 ICMP message. And its data length is 32 bytes. You know, that's why it always says pinging with 32 bytes. And look here. Here's the data. You ever wondered what the data was inside of an ICMP packet? I know you lie awake at night just wondering. Well, here it is. It's the ABCs uh, up through W, and then it starts all over again at A. I, I don't know what was wrong with X, Y, and Z. Anyway, there you have it. A quick look at ethereal and packet sniffing. So, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this segment of Network Tools. Look forward to bringing another one to you right here on Amateur Logic TV. That was pretty neat, Jim. Packet sniffing can be a lot of fun. Well, Jim, what does OSI stand for? Well, it actually stands for Open Systems Initiative. Hmm. Even though you might think open systems is a new term, this one stems from back in the computer dark ages. Uh, say 1983 when folks like Apple and Novell and DEC all had their own computer networking language so to speak. 
so some people got together, brought together the Open Systems Initiative, set down these protocols for how computers could talk to each other, and really that took hold and made possible the birth of the Internet. Hmm. Oh, the birth of the Internet. Did anybody get some footage of that? Uh, <laughs> I saw some on YouTube. It was pretty ugly. <laughs> uh, well, I think Al Gore was there. He was, wasn't he? Yeah. I knew he had something to do with it. <laughs> well, Tommy, I understand you're uh, still feeling a little raw. Yeah. I got a segment about raw files, the sequel. And I actually go into a little detail and show you some neat things that you can actually do with the files themselves. Oh, nice. Hi, welcome to another episode of Photo Tips. This month we're going to kind of continue on with the same topic we had last month, file formats. I didn't have enough time to show you some of the benefits of using the file formats. We mainly discussed some of the technical aspects. Today we're going to go, we're going to load a file, a raw file, that was exposed properly for the foreground, but because there was sky in the background, the sky part was blown out or washed out with no detail. We're going to make two images out of our RAW file with two different exposures. One exposed for the sky, one exposed for the foreground, and we'll merge those two together and create one much better image out of it. Let's take a look at how we can accomplish that. Okay, we're going to take a picture that's overexposed for the highlights and perfectly exposed for the darks and the midtones and create two images out of it. Again, I'm using the same software we used in the previous episodes. As you can see, the brick area looks normal, but around it, the sky part is overexposed overexposed and it's washed out you can't see any detail if we move the exposure slider because we shot this in raw we can see what happens when we underexpose the whole image as you can see there's cloud detail coming out over here so what we're going to do is create two images and then merge them and get the best portions of both images to make one good one so we'll save this one as a JPEG and we'll call this one dark for lack of a better name and we'll set this one back to the regular exposure and we'll call this one light These raw files can take a few seconds to work with because there's a lot of data. Okay, so we're finishing creating our two copies. As you can see in the thumbnails, they're distinctly different. Let's load them up in, uh, actually we've got it open here. Let's load them up in Photoshop Elements because, again, that's what I'm familiar with. Open up Light. And let's open the dark copy. And we'll select all of this one, copy it to the clipboard, and we'll go back to our light version and paste it. And as you can see, it'll make a dark, uh, another layer called 
dark. You can rename these if you like. Um, it doesn't really matter. Actually, okay, you can't rename the original one. Any, at any rate, you can see the difference in the two. So what we're going to do is select the dark layer and take our eraser, set it for a soft edge brush, and you can see we've got the detail in the bright areas of the image, but now because we underexposed this dark copy, the bricks are too dark. So what we'll do is take our eraser and go through and actually erase the dark copy off of the top of the light copy and keep the portions of the image that we want. For the sake of demonstration we're going to do a rough a rough edit here and you could zoom in with your square brush and actually clean up these corners a little bit better. Let's get the rest of it. It's actually kind of fun to play with. And as you, now you can see we've got some corners that need a little bit of work still. Okay, like I said, you could zoom in, change your brush, make a square brush, and actually go in and clean up those corners all the way. Um, but we've got a much more pleasing image now than we had before. Let's take a look at our before and our after. There's our before. You can see no detail in the sky at all. And there's our before and our dark one and we've merged them together and made one good image with detail all the way around. Raw is, uh, like I said in the previous episode, raw images are definitely the way to go if you want to get the most out of your photography. A few Photoshop skills don't hurt either. Well, you gotta admit that's a big difference in the before and the after on that shot. While the first one was Exposed right for the building. You couldn't see any detail in the sky. Now you've got the best of both in, in the same image. Um, you know, obviously, take your time and adjust your uh, eraser tool and go in and clean up the edges a little bit better. For the sake of demonstration and time purposes, I did not go into that detail. But just take your time and you can create that image where you can't see that it's been manipulated. Um, takes a little skill, a little practice, but it's not difficult to accomplish. I um, hope you enjoyed this segment. If you have any questions or tips or uh, anything I left out or maybe suggestions for an upcoming episode, as always, drop me a line. Give me an email at tmartin at amateurlogic.tv and I'll do my best to get you an answer. And uh, if you have a suggestion... I'll do my best to get that on in an upcoming episode. Speaking of that, I've got a couple in the bag from some viewers that emailed previously and uh, tried to get it on this month, but I really wanted to follow up with the theme of the raw files from last month. So look for uh, some of those coming up on the next couple of episodes, and I think you'll be surprised at some of that. Some fun things coming. 
I'll see you next month on Photo Tips. Well, Tommy, that is a super neato trick. I've been using raw files already, and now I have something else I can do with them too. Cool. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting thing to do. Um, raw files, or I'm sorry, digital images only have a certain, what they call latitude, so many stops of light you can have from white to black, and you can kind of expand on that and get more dynamic range in your image using that technique. Yeah, Tommy, that goes along with a little something else that I work with that George is familiar with. And I think we've even had a little something on Amateur Logic about it before. You may remember my weather satellite reception. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. Of the NOAA satellites. They have a little thing uh, that they call false color images. And uh, the actual image coming down from the bird is just black and white. When I receive it direct, it's black and white. But through the magic of software, just like this that you've shown us, they uh, make a color image out of it somehow. I'm not really sure exactly the full magic. details. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's cool. definitely magic. That might make a really interesting segment sometime for the show. A segment just on nothing but that. Yeah, that, that's pretty wild, the raw mode. You know, I've played with audio for years, mixing things together to produce uh, something totally different, but never really thought about, you know, you can do these type of things with the camera. That's really slick. Yeah, and you know, it's just amazing. I did think of one more. We have uh, long-range projectors at the church that sit way in the back of the church. Yeah. And uh, they're not quite as bright by the time they project the image all the way up on the front, at the front of the church, which, which is a pretty fair distance. And a guy told us just yesterday that we could combine the two. You can stack them and you do the lens shift and you point them both at exactly the same spot. Really? And you can double your brightness. Increase the intensity. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if that'll work with the foundation we have in Jackson because <laughs> by the time, <laughs> you, you know, your foundation moves one tenth of a millimeter, very everything's true. out of convergence. He did say you'd have to have a stable platform. So yeah, very, so very much. Yeah, that's, didn't that's to, a neat trick. Yeah, didn't mean to digress there. <laughs> well, Jim, we've uh, let's cover a couple of pieces of email here. Okay. Uh, I believe you've got one here. We had a question from a fellow ham radio operator. Yes, uh, uh, a ham radio operator, fellow ham radio operator, wrote in to ask if he could use some of the ALTV materials uh, at his ham group meeting or possibly for training of hams. And were they copyrighted and so on and so forth? And, uh, and the answer is, yes, you may use ALTV. Uh, materials and resources for your hem group training just as long as it's non-commercial. Our actual copyright is with Creative Commons and if you go to our web page you'll see a link down at the bottom that you can follow to learn more about that. Mm -hmm. And if you would uh, link directly to our pages so that uh, your uh, visitors get to right. come straight to our page rather than linking to our videos uh, yeah. We'd rather them actually come to the site, so yeah, it helps to keep that in mind. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, George. spread the word. Yeah. Well, uh, actually, spreading the word, um, we're on television in Canada. Oh, I heard that. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. 
Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my wife was talking about going up there and seeing it, but she felt like that was a little far to travel. It <laughs> is. It wasn't that good a show. <laughs> Actually, tell us, yeah. tell us more about it. There's a uh, show that's on in Canada uh, on the, I guess, uh, Rogers Broadcasting produces it. It's called Torrent on TV. And it uh, features Amber Mack, who's been one of the hosts of the Call for Help tech show there. Yeah, I've seen, anyway, her. seen her on a lot of different yeah. shows, in fact. Basically, what they've done is taken little pieces of different people's uh, podcast or video cast and put them together into a weekly show. And uh, we're featured in episode number 21. There's a link down here on the bottom of your screen if you want to uh, go visit it and, uh, and see Tarrant and uh, Amateur cool. Logic in particular. It's www.onehug.com slash T-O-R. That'll take you to the directory where um, you'll find other episodes of it as well. And we're in episode 21. And I have not personally had a chance to watch that show yet. Tommy, have you? Yes, I did. It was very interesting. Well, you can enlighten us all, uh, or just enlighten <laughs> me, because George already knows, but what, what amateur logic material did they have on the show they they actually did uh this last time they did george's um episode from the previous what was it i guess that was episode seven right george no eight eight um yeah actually yeah very recent it was episode eight anyway it's on his uh how the power how are things powered weird you know powered. where he showed the little boat the one where he kept us guessing yeah, yeah. That was a good segment. Yeah, it was very. It was interesting. I thought it was pretty cool. Well done. Well produced. <laughs> well, and uh, we're going to continue this week and uh, back to the bench. We've had some requests uh, to do a segment on soldering, and I figured it's about time. Tommy, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but this man sitting right here taught me how to solder when I was about 18 years old and a young Radio Shack intern. Don't blame it on me. And they, did they have Radio Shacks back then, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> they actually did. Yeah, they actually did. And, uh, yeah, CBs were real big back yeah. then, too. CBs? Yeah. Ham guys can't say those two letters together. I know, but, but to tell the truth, Jim and I actually cut our teeth climbing up on 18-wheelers and Trimming on antennas and setting SWR. Setting the swirl. <laughs> yep. As it were. For a few yeah, years. I've done a few of those myself. Yep. That was back in the, the mid-70s, yep. mid to late-70s. Yep. A lot of CB radios sold in those days. But I can attest, Tommy, the man knows how to solder. And anyone, any of our viewers would do well to watch carefully his segment. You'll, you'll really learn how to solder and do it the right way. Well, there's a lot more to it than this, but this will get you started. Have a look. On this episode of From the Bench, we're going to handle a little viewer mail. In particular, an email I recently got from Andy Graham. He's saying, how about a soldering tutorial for us board swapping PC guys? Lots of DC jacks fell on laptops. I don't have the soldering chops to replace or the wits to install a jack that won't break. Well, without getting into actually how to replace a jack on a laptop, which I don't have a laptop right now that needs it replaced, and rather than tear up mine, I thought it would be a good time to take a look at soldering and some of the basic things that you need to know when you're going to solder. 
Um, it makes a big difference in the kind of job that you're going to have in the long run, uh, how long uh, your project could last. One thing I want to caution you about is always disconnect the power from whatever you're going to be soldering. You do not need to be soldering on something that has electricity applied to it. Not only will you damage whatever it is you're trying to solder, um, you'll likely hurt yourself as well. What do you need to solder with? Well, the first thing you're going to need is a good soldering iron. Not necessarily the cheapest one that you can find at Walmart. You want one that's going to uh, provide good even temperature, uh, preferably one that's thermostatically controlled. Um, most of the ones you find at Radio Shack are fine, and uh, those that you'd probably order from an electronic supply house are fine. You also want to keep the uh, soldering iron clean, uh, the tip on it clean at all times. And the best way to do that is with a wet sponge. Uh, you also want to pay attention to your temperature. Uh, if your iron is too hot for what it is you're trying to solder, then you're going to end up doing more damage than you are good. So choose the right soldering iron for the job. Alright, the first thing we'll look at is uh, my soldering iron here. I prefer to use a soldering station for most jobs and this uh, you know, little unit right here is around 50 bucks. It's available from Weller. It's a WLC 100. Uh, it's nothing fancy. Uh, it does have a thermostatic control in it. It also allows you to vary the temperature uh, via a pot mounted on the front. It also has a cleaning sponge and a uh, holder for the uh, soldering iron. You want to keep your tip clean and the best way to do that is by using a sponge. I like to uh, clean the tip frequently before I start soldering and even during the process. It's also important that the tip be tinned with the solder that you're going to be soldering with. Tin it involves nothing more than just taking a little bit of the solder and letting it melt onto the tip. This way when you begin soldering your uh, wire or whatever you're soldering to doesn't try to stick to the tip and it also allows the, uh, the solder to flow better. Once you've got a, a good portion on there and it's smooth all over the iron you can wipe it off get a good clean tip. That's what you want. If it's not clean uh, if you've got some black marks on there or something like there's a little one on this uh, tip right here it could eventually make a hole there, so it's best to clean it off. Get you a good clean tip to start with. You can use the blade from a screwdriver or a knife or any uh, sharp object to scrape that off with. Anything that won't melt. And it's a good idea to do this before you actually begin soldering. So you've got a good, good shiny tip. Once you've scraped it off, then just go to your sponge and wipe off. And you probably need to tin again as you will have scraped most of your tinning off. I can't overstress how important it is to have a good, clean, wet sponge 
to keep your soldering iron clean with. If you don't have that, you could use a paper towel or um, any kind of cloth that you could get wet and keep it wet so it doesn't burn. Too wet and it will actually decrease the temperature of the tip and you can't get the solder off. If you don't have a fancy soldering station with a sponge, you can make your own. Just go to the grocery store and pick up a standard uh, kitchen sponge. Take you a razor blade and just cut slits right into the sponge. Not all the way through, but at least halfway. Then you've got a good uh, surface that the tip can fit down inside of to wipe off uh, deposits of solder. It's only a buck or two, so, you know, there's no excuse for not having one in your toolkit. And when you're soldering, it's very important to use the right solder for the job. And for electronics, which is primarily what we'll be talking about here, you want to use a solder that's not going to corrode and destroy whatever it is you're working on. It might look okay when you get through, but years later, if you've used the wrong type of solder, it can eat right through the traces or the wires. Now, I like uh, multi-core solder. It's uh, uh, safe for electronics. It's uh, rosin or esrin based. It's not acid core. And that's one thing you want to be careful of is never use acid core solder on electronics. Um, some solders are solid wires. This particular one ha is hollow and has the flux inside. Now, what's the flux for? Well, that helps the uh, solder stick to the metal better. Without the flux, it won't stick. Now for solid lead solder, you'll have to add flux to that. And you won't have uh, solid solder normally for electronics. This would only be used for uh, soldering metals together uh, for other type of projects, uh, heavier use. But uh, you need to be careful uh, with what type of flux you use. This flux here, it just says it's water-soluble flux, and that's about all it says. It will eat your electronics up. Be very careful what type of flux you use. You want to be sure that you use one that is non-corrosive. Uh, this kind of flux I bought uh, when I got out of college, and there's still a little bit left in here. So uh, buy a can of it. It's worth a little bit that it costs, and it'll probably last you the rest of your life. Uh, I've given away a little bit of this to numerous people. You normally don't use flux, um, but if you've got a case of a connector or uh, a large piece of metal that you want to solder, by applying a little extra flux to it, you can get that solder to uh, flow much quicker and you don't burn up whatever it is you're trying to uh, connect to. Now, in the case of solder steel, you want to be careful. Never use acid core solder for electronic projects. Let's remember that. There's another type of solder you may want to know about. Now, this is uh, called silver solder, and you can find it in a lot of hardware stores. Normally not for electronics, but you might use it for uh, some larger electronic connections where you can clean it good afterwards. I would use uh, rosin core flux with this. And the reason that uh, we like silver solder for non-electronic projects or for heavier uh, soldering uh, tasks is because silver solder is stronger after it's dried. But not only that, silver solder will melt at a lower temperature. So you don't have to have as much heat uh, 
uh, for those large projects. So when you begin to solder, there's a few points to remember. First, you want to use the correct amount of heat adjusted on your iron or by using the proper iron for the job. You don't want to burn surrounding components or insulation, so be careful. You want a good clean iron. A dirty iron will never uh, make a good connection. You want to use rosin core or electronic safe solder. You don't want to use cheap solder either. Uh, it just won't work. It'll ball up on the end of the tip and it just won't stick to your wires. I like to use multi-core or Weller, uh, Kester. You can use Radio Shack solder. I understand that it is better these days, but uh, I normally don't use it. Now, not every metal will uh, hold solder, in particular aluminum won't. So keep that in mind. So we've tinned our iron. It's ready to solder. Uh, the next thing we we'll want to do is uh, tin the material that we'll be soldering. The reason that you'll want to tin wires is to not only make them stick quicker to whatever connector or other wire you're soldering it to, but also um, it'll melt back some of the insulation that's on the wire so that you don't do it when you're actually trying to solder to the connector. It's uh, pre-shrunk more or less. Different uh, types of wire will have a different amount of shrinkage on the insulation when it gets hot. Some, uh, particularly Teflon, are not affected at all, but most do have uh, some shrinkage or meltage uh, when you do get them hot. As you can see, I put my iron on the wire and then we touch the solder right to where the wire and the soldering iron join. We don't put the solder on the iron and then put it on the wire. We actually want to heat the wire and allow the solder to soak directly into it. We also don't want to leave too much uh, solder on the wires. Just enough that you've got them coated good now when we stick these to a connector or to another wire they will bond much quicker so we won't burn up the connector that we're trying to solder to to avoid overheating the connector itself it's often a good idea to tin the connector before we actually began uh, soldering the wire we'll do that by just applying a little solder directly to the metal of the connector and just allowing it to flow along Now when we stick our wire through and solder it, it takes very little heat to actually make it stick. The solder just runs right to the wire. And this way we didn't burn up that 35 cent connector that you got at Radio Shack. Which by the way, this is not one of those type. It's very important that you don't move the wire or the connector until the solder has thoroughly dried. Otherwise, you'll have a bad joint, what's often referred to as a cold joint. Typically, a good solder joint will look shiny. A cold solder joint will look dull and will even break when you pull the wire.
When soldering to a PC board, it's very important that you don't allow the solder to run between the traces. You want to use just enough solder to make the connection you intend and no extra to flow over and create problems. So I put the iron to the board and the wire and then I apply the solder right to where the two meet. Now I can cut those two wires and there I have a good connection and there is no solder bridge between the two connections. This is what you want to avoid. Now if you have too much solder on a board there's a couple of different ways to get it off. One is by using a device uh, called a vacuum uh, desoldering tool or a solder sucker. You cock the device and uh, put the tip to the area after you heat it up, release the trigger, and it sucks the excess solder away. Now another popular method of removing solder, and let's make our bad connection again, is with solder wick. It's just a braid uh, with some flux in it that you can buy at Radio Shack or an electronic supply store. You put that over the solder, heat it up with the iron, and the solder actually melts and soaks into the brake. So when you remove the braid, you take the solder with it. I hope you've enjoyed this brief look at soldering today. This was just an introductory lesson to get you started. Now get you some materials and start practicing because the more you practice, the less opportunity you have to mess up something that's really important. Hey, that was a pretty good segment. I picked up some soldering tips from that myself. Well, I've been soldering for a pretty good while. I gotta admit, I'm not the best at it. So hopefully that should help me out a little bit. Member of the Burnt Finger Club? Yeah. Oh man, I have, <laughs> I've had burnt fingers many times. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, you know, I've been doing it what, 35 years more? I still enjoy melting a little solder every now and then. You know, I guess maybe after uh, seeing that segment, George, and talking about soldering, maybe we should give tribute to one of our fellow uh, technical shows that uh, has solder in their namesake. What do you oh, think? Oh, Solder Smoke. I yeah. know who you're talking yeah. about. It's a uh, audio podcast. Right, and I know that you listen to it, and I listen to it, and I think Tommy mm -hmm. listens to it. And that's... Uh, Bill and Mike, KL7R and M0H. I don't know you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Bill's got that London call, and uh, one guy's in London, one guy's in Alaska, and they talk weekly about technical things that using, they're soldering. Using Echo Link, which you've seen here before. That's right. And they record it like a. Uh, uh, podcast for amateur radio operators. Yep. I, love it. I think and you can pick it up at www.soldersmoke.com. Okay. All right. And speaking of solder smoke, there's a way now to solder without using your soldering iron. Ah. We've got a little bag of parts here. And you're not talking that JB solder either. No, nope. right? not the JB Weld <laughs> kind no, either. No duct tape oh. either. <laughs> Although it does look similar to the JB Weld. 
This little board right here is called a Soft Rock 40. Cool and kit. It's a very cool kit. This is a shortwave radio, or, or will, will be, be. <laughs> when you plug it into a computer. And, uh, and when, when we finish soldering the components on it. Yeah. Now, actually, this um, we're not going to solder this with a soldering iron. We're going to do this a different way uh, using some soldering paste and an oven. And maybe we'll have a little footage on that. We'll see. Maybe so. Yeah. It sounds like a good photo op. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'll be a new experience for us, that's for sure. We've never done anything like this right. before. And the reason for that is uh, can be summed up in three letters. SMT, which I think stands for Surface Mount Technology. Yep. And it also stands for Too Small to Sorter. <laughs> with a sword and iron. <laughs> yeah. Maybe in some other language. Don't yeah. Man, I might be able to solder with an oven. Yeah. Yeah. Really? It's called reflux. Wow. Well, <laughs> we'll know a little bit more about it in the future. And uh, if we're successful, you'll hear about it. If not, <laughs> you'll probably never hear about this subject again. <laughs> True enough. I'm pretty sure you can pull it off. Well, we've had a few people ask about the IRC channel. Um, that disappeared. Tommy, tell us a little bit about it. We did have a chat room over at TechFile, uh, irc.techfile.org, I believe it was, and uh, Frank shut that one down. So the Hack5 guys were nice enough to start up a new chat room, irc.hack5.org, and you can find us there in the Amateur Logic room, Pound Amateur Logic. Cool. Cool beans. That was nice. Yeah. Thanks to Darren and the uh, guys at Heck Five. Darren and Wes. Yeah. Yeah. And no, definitely. Allie, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. So. yeah. They, they got a great show. Check them out over at HackFive.org. Yeah. Well, that about wraps us up, doesn't it? That George? about wraps it up. Yeah. Seems like it was right. kind of short. It does. Yeah. They go yeah. by well, time flies there. when you're having fun like that. Yeah. Even, That's right. even when you're suffering through it like we did. <laughs> <laughs> No, actually, we enjoyed it. Uh, kind of a little Harry Carey thrown together this episode. Sometimes. Sometimes. Tommy, anything else from you? Uh, nope, I think that about covers it for me. Um, like I said in my episode uh, at the end, um, I've had some requests for some photo tips, uh, things for photo tip segments, and I hope to get at least one of those in for next month's episode. And uh, if you have any more ideas, things that you'd like to see, give me an email and uh, I'll do my best to get those on. Yeah, Super. yeah, we want to see some of that real Missouri mountain man uh, photography. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, Jim, that does it for episode nine. I guess so. Be sure and drop us an email or send us your video. We'd like uh, to put you on ALTV if you'd like to be. Yeah, really just... Uh, Drop us an email, Jim, George, or Tommy at AmateurLogic.tv. Till then, see ya. Next time. See you next month.
We actually do see it. If you shine yours at the camera, we see the light. Really? Yeah. I don't see it myself. I look right in it with my eyes. Linda Bud pointed at the camera. I can see it. See, it's three dashes and a dot. He's, he's got your <laughs> leg, man. Oh, uh, you can see it. Look here, Jim. Shine it there again. Shine it there again. See it? You're not flashing it. Push the button. Yeah. Oh, I did see yeah, it. Yeah, I did yeah. see it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what but I mean. If I look straight into the, if I look straight in it, I can't see it. I can't either. The, the camera picks it up, but you can't see it with your eyes directly. Yeah, I know. 